Today's episode of Recovery Survey is fueled by Brainwash Coffee Company. I'm sure you've heard that drug and alcohol use is on the rise, especially during the pandemic. And Brainwash Coffee Company is working to raise money and awareness to support people seeking help. They donate 50% of their profits and their mission is to give back to the amazing recovery community. Their why is bold and their coffee is fresh. So if you want to sip on an amazing brew that warms your mind, body, and soul, then visit brainwashcoffeeco.com and use promo code recovery survey at checkout to get $5 off your first order. Brainwash Coffee Company, simple coffee for complicated people. You're listening to Recovery Survey, the podcast that shatters stigmas around different types of addictions and takes a deep dive into spiritual principles. And so for me, rock bottom was pretty grim. But once I hit the end, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to deal with my shit. And so I found a therapist and a sponsor and I started to get better. And the more I learned about this stuff, I was like, everyone needs to know this. Like, there's shit here we need to know. And if we know it, life gets better. And so I switched careers early 30s and became a therapist. My guest today is named Britt Frank. She is a licensed psychotherapist, trauma specialist, and the author of The Science of Stuck. Welcome to the show, Britt. Hi, I'm Britt Frank. I am the author of the new book, The Science of Stuck. I'm also a trauma therapist and recovering hot mess of a human. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, Britt. I'm so excited to have you on today. I read your book. Uh, I finished it about a week ago or so, and I have some spots highlighted in here, and I'm just excited to dive in and talk more about the book. And I'm just curious why you decided to write the book, where that came from. I just always like to know, like, the inspiration for an author. Like, is it something you've always wanted to do or where where did the book come from? Oh, I've always known I wanted to write a book. That's been like a child when I had no friends and I just had my head buried in books to escape the trauma of childhood. That's always been a thing. I wrote this book because it was the one I needed that didn't exist when I started recovery. I'm like, I don't need 25,000 books. I need one that sums up everything because my brain is so fried from all of the shit. Oh, can I say shit on your podcast? Yeah, go for it. Okay, cool. Uh, my brain's so fried from everything I've been doing to it. I can't focus. I just need bottom lines. Like, I don't want a deep dive. Just tell me what do I need to know about just this and just this. So it's sort of like a just the bottom line kind of read. I like that. And and just the way you you broke it down, the way the book is structured, where you have the the five minute, um, I can't remember how you phrased it, like the little five minute uh, exercises at the end of the chapters and the summaries that kind of go through like the bullet points of every chapter. I just love how, how it's written and it's so easy to, to, to flip back through there and like find little pieces that you might have kind of forgotten or don't remember exactly how it was phrased. It's like, oh, I can just go back to the end of the chapter and find kind of the synopsis of it. Yeah. I mean, I remember being early in recovery. Like my sponsor had to talk me through eating a yogurt. I tell that story in the book. It's like, I couldn't even figure out what day it was, where I was. She's like, take the spoon, put it in the yogurt, put the yogurt in your mouth. So like for a book to be something I had to wait, like it wouldn't have happened. So I've got the chapters, the bullet points, five minute exercises. So it's pretty user-friendly for wherever you're at in the process. And if you have a fully intact brain, there's plenty in there for you too. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, I love that. I love that. Well, if you wouldn't mind, before we dive too deep into the book, would you mind sharing a little bit about your story for the listeners that maybe aren't familiar with you? How did you find recovery? What did your life before recovery look like? Just kind of a a, a short version of, of your story. So like the shiny stuff is I'm a trauma specialist. I'm a licensed therapist. I write, I speak, I teach, but like, that's not because I was a healthy human. I was what would have been considered personality disorder, depressed, anxious, panic. Like I had all of the diagnoses, all of the mental illness stuff. Um, I tried meds. I tried all the things. Nothing worked. Drugs took me out of my misery for a minute, which they tend to do until they stop doing that. Then after a while, I came to not rock bottom. I don't totally subscribe to rock bottom. Rock bottom is wherever you're like, okay, I'm done. I give up. And so for me, rock bottom was pretty grim. But once I hit the end, I'm like, okay, I'm ready to deal with my shit. And so I found a therapist and a sponsor and I started to get better. And the more I learned about this stuff, I was like, everyone needs to know this. Like there's shit here we need to know. And if we know it, life gets better. And so I switched careers early thirties and became a therapist. I love that. And, and what a testament just to like switching careers in your thirties. I feel like that's I think it's becoming more common, but it, it hasn't always been that common. And I'm in, I'm in my thirties and I've switched careers several times. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, everyone in my master's program was 22 and right, not everyone, but most of them were 22 and right out of undergrad, all fresh faced and wide eyed. I'm like, Oh God, I'm the oldest person in this room, but like, whatever I've found that do your thing. And you know, the two years of discomfort were well worth the getting to do this now. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, diving into the book, the first, I mean, the very first quote that you have right there in the introduction, like I read that and it was just like, it just set the tone for the book. And I think it was so perfect. It's the quote you had from Emerson Poe. If the human brain were so simple that we could understand it, we would be so simple that we couldn't. And it was just like, boom, like it just set the tone for the whole book. And I thought it was a fantastic quote. I I love that you put that at the very beginning and it just kind of for me, just kind of set the groundwork for what we were about to dive into. Well, it really annoys me that people try to make the brain and recovery even so simple. And like, it's this, just do this this way. And here's what your brain is like. Our brains are so complex and so mysterious. It's like, do what works for you. There's a bajillion things to try. If something doesn't work, try something else. But no one really has a clue what we're talking about. And that needs to be said instead of here's the answer. It's like, here's the information that I know. And this might all be proven to be total bullshit tomorrow, but take everything, including recovery stuff with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I try to make a point when I share my opinion on things on the podcast to say, here's what's worked for me. Right. This might not work for you, but this is here's what has been successful in my life. You could try this. It might work for you as well, but I can't guarantee. Yeah. So I feel like that's kind of the same thing that you're saying here. Like the brain is so complex that there's not one right answer. There's not here. Here it is. It's not black and white cookie cutter. You know, it's just, it's kind of a, a trial and error thing. And I love that you brought that into the book. If only it were that simple. Like when I started 12 step and I love the 12 steps and they saved my life. However, it's very, do it this way. This is the only way. If you don't do it this way, you're going to relapse and die. And like, no, I don't know if you're a hardcore stepper, but I do not like the culty. If you don't do this, if you don't go to five meetings a week, you will relapse and die. It's like, well, clearly I'm, I didn't. So, okay. Nope. Like next, what else? What else is available to us? There's a lot of good stuff out there. Take what's useful, leave what's not. Mm. 
Mm, I love that idea and that that concept of, of take what you need and leave the rest. And I agree, there are definitely a few elements to twelve step that I don't necessarily agree with. <laughs> but I've I've been successful in twelve step, so that's what I've continued to do for the most part. But I do supplement and do a few other little things here and there. But the majority of my recovery has been twelve step. But I I agree with you that there are some elements of I don't like I don't like to use the word cult, but <laughs> ish. <laughs> I like how Russell Brand broke down the 12 steps because the 12 steps, if you simplify them to like, guess what? You're fucked. You don't have to be fucked. There's a way to not be like if you can simplify the principles and take all the religion and all the morality out of it as a principle, the 12 steps are simply you have a problem. There's help available. Make a decision. Get the help. Do your work. Give it away. Like, yeah, I'm all about that. It's some of the weirder nuances of the program that make me go, hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. Uh, there's a few things that still kind of, <laughs> <laughs> but I don't want to offend any of my 12 step people. I know there's yay 12 step. We love the 12 steps. We love 12 steps. I know there's some folks from my, my home group that listen to the podcast and you know, I love you guys. I love the program. Not trying to dog anybody. If it works for you, keep doing it, you know, find what works for you. I think that's the general message of this episode, the podcast, you know, just in general is find what works for you and stick with that. You know, if it doesn't work for you, find the thing that does. Absolutely. No disrespect to the steps or the steppers. Awesome. Well, I have several things highlighted in your book. The part that I have highlighted here in the anxiety chapter, it says anxiety does not need to be fixed. It needs to be understood. I liked where you were talking about anxiety and it not necessarily being a negative thing. I've never heard anyone talk about anxiety in a positive light. And so I thought that that was really interesting and, and how you compared it to a check engine light in your car. And I just, I love that you, that you talked about anxiety in a positive manner because I've never, never heard that. And my disclaimer with that anxiety sucks. I hate feeling anxious more than most, like of all the feelings that are available to us as humans that like, I'm going to die. I'm going to go crazy. The walls are closing in and I'm going to just explode. That's an awful feeling. So I'm in no way saying that anxiety doesn't suck. It does. And anxiety, again, just like a smoke alarm or the check engine light, if we don't have a smoke alarm in our house or a carbon monoxide detector, we're going to die if we don't know that there is a problem. And we get very concerned with fixing anxiety. Like I just need to, you can disable your smoke detector, but then if there's a fire, you're screwed. You could, you know, take your check engine light and disable it on your car, but then how are you going to know if there's a problem? And so understanding that anxiety doesn't attack, that's a big one. Mm -hmm. Like my whole thing is anxiety does not attack you. The check engine light's not attacking the car. It's a light. It's a signal. Anxiety is your brain lighting up going, Hey, there's a problem here. And you know, with my, I'll speak for myself. My addiction personally was a very, very powerful way for me to escape the things that were wrong, the things that were wrong with me, the things that were wrong with my relationships, with my life. And I didn't want to like look under the hood and see what's going on under there. And which is fine. You know, you, you come to the truth when you're ready, but knowing that anxiety is, we get so distracted with anxiety is my problem. Anxiety is my disorder. I'm being attacked by this thing. It's like, no, anxiety is the light and we need it or else we die. And that's unfortunate, but it's true. Yeah. I, I, I love that. And, and yeah, there was the part where you're talking about it not being an attack and that was, 
that was so good. And I feel like so many people could benefit just from this chapter alone. If, if this was the, if this was all there was to the book was just this chapter, I feel like so many people could benefit from it. And I love, I love the analogy of it being the check engine light. It just makes so much sense to me. And I, I love that. Thanks. I mean, even if we just change our language from I'm having a panic attack to my brain feels really unsafe and I don't know why, but something's wrong here. That will give us at least some sort of direction. As well. If it's just I'm being attacked, then that's like end game. There's what are you supposed to do? Nothing to do there but collapse and die or fight or run. But if it's okay, something is wrong here. I, hell if I know what it is, but something is going on. That'll give you at least a little bit of a starting place versus the shutdown, you know. And that's usually a big cue for relapse. Is I feel anxious. I don't know why. I don't like it. It feels awful. So quick, numb it out. Versus okay, I hate this feeling. This feeling sucks, but it is a signal and something is something's re- weird here. Like I wonder what it could be is better than what's wrong with me. Like nothing's wrong with you. There are no broken people and there's no such thing as crazy. I love that. And I, I can totally relate to that because in my early recovery, the feelings were just so overwhelming and it just felt like, how do I deal with any of this? Mm-hmm. And I struggled for a while to get to any point of of a, a long amount of time because the emotion is just it was so new so foreign so overwhelming it's just like i don't know how to handle the way that i'm feeling but i know how to get rid of those feelings and that's what i've done for so long so it's easy to just kind of mm-hmm. fall back into that old way that old pattern and not have to deal with those feelings and emotions and just the overwhelmingness of that whole situation. And it is, I mean, I'm the most feelings averse therapist you'll meet. I, I don't enjoy emotions, especially when you're being flooded by them. But like, if you're drowning in the ocean, the ocean isn't the problem. The problem is, is that no one taught you how to swim. And so when you're drowning, the ocean is not attacking you. It's that you don't know how to swim because someone missed a big, important piece of your upbringing in teaching you how to swim. And if you can learn how to swim, then the ocean is just a big giant body of water. And feelings are the same way. The feelings feel like they're drowning us. It feels like we're being totally ambushed on every side, but we don't know how to swim because I don't know about you, but nobody taught me. I didn't even know what a feeling was until I was like 28. I'm like, what do you mean? I feel like I don't, I'm mad, I'm mad I can feel and numb I could feel, but like, that was it. Like I knew what mad felt like, but what is shame and what is guilt? And what are all these sad? I don't do sad. Like, no, I'll do angry but we're not taught how to swim in these brains of ours. And so of course it makes sense that we would feel like we're drowning. And again, I'm not saying drug addiction is ideal, but it makes sense. And so when people get re- they come into my office super, you know, in that shame. And I mean, I was a meth smoker and all the craziness that comes with that particular substance. There's some shamey stuff that comes along with all addictions. I'm biased, but I think meth has a particularly shame thing that's like associated with it, but it makes sense. It's not optimal, but it makes sense. And so I have a great respect for the ways that not for the things that we do, because you know there's some things that we do that are not good, but I have great respect for our impulse to survive. And so if we can de-shame it and let's start like, we'll clean up all the bad things you did later, but let's start with your body decided at all costs, I'm going to survive this. And it works because if you're here and you're listening to this, you're still alive. So yay, your addiction worked. Now let's find a better way of doing life versus 
destroying relationships and annihilating things and all of that. Mm, I love that. The next section that really jumped out at me in the book was where you were breaking down the difference between feelings, emotions, and thoughts. And you just kind of touched on that a little bit. I don't think I ever knew the difference between feelings and emotions. I kind of thought it was synonymous. All the same. And of course we all get stuck, right? Because feelings, emotions, and thoughts all get used interchangeably, right? I just really feel like you're not listening to me. Like That's not a feeling, that's a thought. So at its most simple, a thought is a story. It's a, it's a mind thing. I feel like you're not listening to me is not a feeling. That's something that I've said to myself in my head. So a thought is that mind mental stuff. A feeling is just physiology. It's like you could have a tight stomach and I can have a tight stomach. We both have the same feeling. But if I'm about to get robbed and you're about to start running a marathon, you're going to feel excited and I'm going to feel terrified. You know, that's the emotion. So a feeling is just what does the body feel like? The emotion is the feeling plus what's actually happening, the feeling plus the story. So your excitement is a tight stomach plus yay marathon. My terror is tight stomach, oh shit, robbery. And so we need to know that those are all different things or else we're going to not know what to do when they pop up. And I'm so glad that you broke those down in the book. And I was, I was just sitting, as I was sitting there reading it, it's just like, it makes so much sense, but I've never stopped to think about like, what are the differences between feelings, emotions, thoughts? Like you said, we all just kind of think of it as the same thing, just interchangeable and it's definitely not. So I'm glad that you broke that down in the book and, and made it such a simple concept that just the, the, the way that you had like the little paragraphs on each one and, and just really broke it down and it made it so easy for us to understand. So I, I appreciate you doing that for sure. There's no reason for it to be this like academic big, it's like what's going on in the most simple terms. Like that's why I put diagrams of cartoons in there. It's like, this doesn't need to be complex. This is something everybody can understand and everyone should have access to this info. Cause again, we're not taught any of this. Like it's insane that we're not taught any of this. And I do, I love that you brought up the diagrams in there and the cartoons. Cause those, those were absolutely awesome. I love, <laughs> I loved seeing those. And, and like you said, making it so simple for everybody to understand. Cause I've, I've read a few books where I'll like, I'll finish a chapter. I'm just like exhausted. Cause I'm like, mm -hmm. why did they make this so hard? Like, mm -hmm. Like this shouldn't be such a chore to read this book. Like, man. And then this one, you pick it up and it's just like, I can understand all of this. Like it all makes sense. It's broken down in a way where anybody can pick this book up and, and understand and not, not feel overwhelmed or exhausted after they read it. Like it, I love that you made it so simple. We're all overwhelmed and exhausted by life in general. Like even if you're not an addict, just COVID and everything else happening in the world. The self-help stuff shouldn't be like the hardest part of your day. It should be like, here's what's going on in simple, easy to understand terms, or else we're going to like not be able to make any changes. And that's not, not fun. Yeah. I'm, I'm currently reading another book that was recommended by a friend and, oh, I think I've gotten two chapters into it and I've had the book for like a month now and I'm, it's, it's, it's just hard to get through. Uh, I know that the information in the book is going to be helpful and I know it's going to be beneficial, but it's just like, Oh, it's such a drag. Like I, I, it's so hard to read it. And I appreciate that yours was so easy. I think I got through your book in like, three or four days. I don't know. It wasn't very long. <laughs> and this other one I had before your book came in and I'm still at the same spot that I was when your book got here. So 
Well, thank you for that. That was a big goal of mine. Like, I want you to be able to get through it all and use it, you know, so you're not stuck. I get really aggravated when I get to the end of a chapter in a book and there's an exercise in there that's going to take me hours and I need supplies and I need like to carve out time. It's like, we don't have that kind of time. Like go do just, and again, the book is not just add water and stir and your life's going to be magic. It's about like, let's just get moving. If we can go from spun to step one, then that's going to allow us to get to the next piece and then the next piece. But we are so focused on going from zero to summiting Everest that we end up not doing anything. So we have to really, really take things in small bites. In the chapter on the shadow intelligence, you talk about the science of self-talk and you were talking earlier about the language that we use and not saying like panic attack or anxiety attack, just the the way that we talk to ourselves, because I think we can be our own harshest critics. We can be so negative on ourselves. You know, it's so easy. I'll speak for myself. It's easy for me to be negative to myself. It's easy for me to be in that spot of talking down to myself after I finished that section, I can remember, and I need to get back in that practice, but like that whole next day at work, when I was having that inner dialogue, I was saying it, I was doing the third person speak uh-huh. and I was trying to do it in a positive way. And I felt a difference. Like it felt like, oh, well, my day felt like it went a little easier. And then like the next day I forgot about it. So I need to get back in that habit and get <laughs> to that place where I can do that on a regular basis. But I love that you brought that up, that you, that you talked about that just the concept of, of being kind to ourselves and the concept of, of talking to ourselves in that third person rather than the first person. I've, I don't think I've ever heard that anywhere else. So I thought that was really interesting and, and very helpful. And again, from the, coming from a hardcore 12 step approach, people get really mad at me when I talk about talking to yourself with kindness. It's I'm not saying don't take accountability. I'm not saying don't own the really bad decisions that you've made. You know, a lot of times there's a lot of repair we need to do. There's a way in which you can talk to yourself kindly without subscribing and co-signing on bad behavior. It's like with a little kid, if a little kid does something wrong, we know that beating them is not going to like turn them into a functional human. Like it doesn't work. So, it's not co-sign the bad behavior, it's change how we're approaching our inner diet, you know. Like instead of I'm so stupid, why did I do that? I suck. Thinking of like, okay, there's a person in my head who did that and it's me, but I'm going to approach this as if it were a child. It's like, hey, buddy, like this is how I used to talk to my addicted parts. Okay, but I know that 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 was a really bad decision. Like what we just did made a big mess. And, you know, I'm not going anywhere and I'm going to walk you through this and I'm going to help you figure out what we need to do to fix things that we can fix. Thinking of yourself as a cast of characters, like Inside Out from Pixar's movie, is a lot more useful and it slows down your brain and it slows down the, oh my God, I have to escape the feelings impulses. So it feels really crazy weird to talk to like yourself like, hey, Brit, who uses drugs, how are you doing today? But it works. And I think that's so important, the slowing down part, because I know for me, especially when I was using, it was just like, reaction just constantly just like something happens react 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 Mm -hmm. and and slowing down and doing the third person talk and really seeing the seeing what's going on like being able to take those extra few seconds to to observe what's happening to to analyze what's happening and not just constantly react 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 but i found that even Mm -hmm. just with with being in recovery and and doing some 12-step work is just trying to slow down and not constantly feel like i'm on the defensive and always having to respond and react and just you know 
just kind of slow things down and, and take my time and make decisions and try to be a decent person and, you know, not just <laughs> flying off the hip, just doing whatever comes to mind. Well, slowing down is really freaking scary if you're, you know, especially if you know the second you slow down, all of the things that you've never faced are going to come like roaring at you like wild animals. Then you could not have paid me. There's not enough money in the world that would have convinced me to slow down because I didn't know what feelings were or what emotions were. And so we have to understand that we're not going to get attacked if we slow down. And if we don't understand what happens when we slow down, then we're going to try to stay sped up. That's why I like speed so much because speed let me stay way ahead of my thoughts, like way ahead of my thoughts, so far ahead of my thoughts that I would see things that weren't there. But it needs to be safe to slow down. It needs to be safe to experience our feelings and it needs to be safe to know what we know or we won't do it. I don't miss the shadow people. I don't either. (laughs) (laughs) Or the cops are coming to get me like constant, you know, no, I don't miss any of that. But at the time, that was still preferable to letting myself know what I knew and feel what I felt, which is saying something. Yeah, I, I totally agree. The next part that I had highlighted that I thought was was really awesome was how to make amends the four O's. I liked I liked that approach to it. I mean, I could see like some elements of 12 step, but then you kind of had your own spin on it. So you had the first one was own your behavior. The second step is observe how the behavior impacted your partner. Third was outline your plan not to do that behavior again. And then four was offer to listen if they need to share anything else about your behavior. And I love that you broke that down and the different steps of making those amends, because I think a lot of us have that idea of the apology instead of the amends or just like, I'm sorry I did that, you know, but, but just apologizing without any kind of action it's not beneficial for anybody. You know, it's just, it. I, I heard somebody say the other day that uh, apologizing without changing our behavior is um, a form of manipulation. manipulation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen that too. And this is something the 12 steps hits like squarely on the head. They get this very, very right. They do it well, is this idea of making amends. And if you're not in the rooms, you'll never hear the concept, you know, the four O's, the steps that you just outlined. Those were sort of my combination of how to do eight and nine. And when you say, I'm sorry, that's about you. It's kind of like, again, I'm not saying like you you step on someone's foot, say, I'm sorry or whatever, but I'm sorry fundamentally is still about you. And if you're trying to repair a relationship, it has to be about them, not about, I feel so bad. I feel so guilty. It's kind of narcissistic, actually, if you think about it, to apologize like that. Because now I'm only saying I'm sorry because I want you to tell me you forgive me so I can feel less bad. And that is not in any way helpful for repairing relationships. But it's like, hey, I did this thing. You must have felt really angry. You must have felt really sad. You must have felt really taken advantage of. In the future, here's what my plan to not do it again. I'm going to therapy. I'm taking my meds. I'm going to meetings. Is there anything else about what happens that you need me to know? Because I'm here to listen. Like that is a ninja way to create repair versus I'm sorry I stole from you. It's like, okay, and I agree. I love that. And and just the way you laid it out, it made so much sense and just the little short explanations of each part of the step and how it works and it perfect. That was that was one of the things that I have like highlighted and circled and like <laughs> like the chapter that's talking about friendships. I just loved the concept that you had about having the mentors and mentees above and below you, and then deep friends, shallow friends. Mm-hmm. 
I don't, something about this chapter, I just, I never thought about like the shallow friendships and that being okay. For some reason, I always had this thought of like every friendship I have needs to be a deep friendship. It needs to look like this. You know, there needs to be like this certain level of intimacy and trust. And, you know, we need to see each other X number of times. And like just this crazy concept of every friendship needs to look like this or it's not a friendship. It's exhausting. This idea, and again, when I talk about shallow friendships, I'm not talking about abusive friendships or toxic friendships. You know, if someone is treating you poorly, get out. Like toxicity is not the thing, but a shallow friendship just means that, like, and I use the example in my book. I have a friend who is just not an honest person. They're not like hostile or harmful, but everything that comes out of their mouth is a lie. But they're really fun to go do things with, to go biking, to go hiking, to go camping. So if I sat down and tried to have this deep heart-to-heart connection, the friendship wouldn't work because they're largely full of shit, but they're really fun to hike with. So we hike and we talk about the hills and the rocks. And I do trust if I fall that they're going to be able to help me navigate myself to safety. But to say that every friendship needs to hit every single beat is not only unrealistic, it's exhausting. And that's why we end up in such high conflict scenarios. Think of your friends again, like a cast of characters. You need the like the best friend, the like the supporting role of best friend will be played by. But having the next door neighbor friend, you know, I love, I live in the Midwest now. I love my neighbors. We have a very shallow relationship. We wave, we say hi, we get each other's mail when we're out of town. I'm not confessing my deepest feelings to them. And I don't need to. That would be exhausting. And so really having permission as adult people to have deep friends and shallow friends and high by friends and acquaintances and do things with friends and talk to people. Like we get to have all of it, not just deep committed, you know, like that's exhausting. I don't, I'm a therapist. I don't want to have deep, meaningful conversations with all of my friends after I'm done with my workday, like snooze. No, no. And I, I totally get that. And I fall into that category too, where I feel like I overshare sometimes because I didn't have that concept of like shallow friends. So I feel like I have to practice this program of brutal honesty and like, let everybody know I'm in recovery. And I used to smoke meth and like, sometimes it's a little too much for, for those shallow friendships. Like they might not need to know all of those things about me. You know, we could stay on that, that surface level. Like you were saying the high by friends, like that's, it's okay to have those friends. But I, I had that idea in my head for whatever reason, like every relationship needs to look like this. It needs to fit in this box. I need to, you know, if, if it's not at that point, like we're not friends or whatever. And I, 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 I just really appreciated that you had that broken down in the book and the different kinds of friendships and then the different myths of friendship. And it was, it was so, so beneficial. It's one of the hardest things I think as an adult is to relearn, you know, getting sober was one thing, but hi, will you be my friends? Like I'm grown and I I need to now find friends was terrifying. And it's because we think the friendships we had as children where I see you every day and we're best friends and we tell each other everything and all each other's secrets is like, we braid each other's hair. It's not realistic and it's not necessary. You know, life, we get to have the full like buffet table of experiences which includes different types of friends. The trick here is to know, but I really want my neighbor to be my deep soul friend. It's like, yeah, but that's not what they're available for. And so again, this is about taking inventory, another 12-step principle, getting really honest with yourself about your inventory and your relationships. Have you miscast somebody in a role that they are not available to play? This is sort of the principles of Al-Anon. 
It's like, you can't change people fundamentally. Like this is who they've chosen to be. Are you willing to have that in your life? Yes or no. And not try to beat your head, trying to make a shallow friend into a deep friend. I'm sure I'm not the only one, but I feel like making friendships in adulthood is so much more difficult than when I was a kid. You know, when I was a kid, it was just like anybody I was around, I felt like we were friends and we'd run around and play and do whatever, you know, ride bikes in the neighborhood or go to the park or whatever. And it felt like it was so easy. But as an adult, it's like, man, I have so much other stuff going on. You know, I have to, I have to go to work. I have responsibilities with my family. It's like, when do I have time for friends? And it's hard, especially I think for people, maybe if you, you move, you're in a new location, you're recently sober and you don't want to hang out with the old, old crowd. Like it can be so difficult and so frightening Mm -hmm. to, to step out and try to begin to make those friendships. And you kind of laid it out a little bit in the book about finding those friends and not having to find that best friend. And it's okay to have just those shallow friendships. And, but I think that's, I think that's an area that so many of us can struggle with. Cause I was, as I was reading this book, I was actually messaging with a, with another guy that does a, a different podcast. He had sent me a message like, I'm having such a hard time making friends. I don't know what to do. And I was like, oh, well, I'm actually reading a book right now that has a section on that exact thing. Like, I'll, I'll give you some of the, some of the snippets out of the book. I like, I totally get that. Like, it's so hard sometimes for us as adults to make those friendships and those connections. Which is why we need permission for them to start shallow. It's like when you're working out, you don't start with a marathon. You start by taking a walk around the block. And so, you know, building the friendship muscle with shallow friends is a great place to start. As an adult, you know, knowing that we all actually have that need. You know, I work with a lot of uh, men in my therapy practice, and they all say the same thing. They all want friends. They all want to be socially engaged, but none of them want to make the first move. And I'm like, y'all need to get in a room and talk to each other because I'm hearing the same thing 30 times a week that, you know, you're feeling disconnected, you're feeling disengaged, but it's terrifying. And that's where, you know, Oregon, my husband's part of a group called F3 and they get together at five in the morning and do these crazy workouts and it's an hour and you're in and you're out, but that's a really safe way for men to engage. This is a men's group for men to engage. It's like, come and do the thing together. You're sort of parallel being together, but you're not required to gaze into each other's eyes and talk. And that gives a, a safety to social engagement and community, you know, like gather around a group activity do the thing. And then eventually you do that long enough, you're going to start talking to each other. And then it's, Hey, I actually like, you're cool. Let's go do things. Let's go whatever. So finding ways to, you know, practice building the muscle and then worrying about the deep soul connections later. It's it's such good advice. Just finding that activity that you enjoy being around other people. And then eventually those friendships kind of blossom. And I feel like for me, that was what meetings were in the beginning was I didn't have any kind of social skills. I was going to the same, the same group over and over and over again, and eventually started making those connections. Then we would like go out to eat and stuff after. Mm -hmm. And then it was like just kind of organically friendships blossomed. And I feel like being at meetings was kind of me having the training wheels on and learning friendships again. So I I can totally relate to to what you said and, and it makes so much sense. I also had the breaking the addiction spiral section highlighted. A bad thing happened. Acknowledge the thing. Feel the pain of the thing. Consider your choices for soothing the pain. Remind yourself there's le- that this is a legitimate thing. Take a deep breath. Resist the impulse. Like you kind of break down the stages of of 
addiction and what happens, what goes through our minds. I was reading it and agreeing with it, but I don't think I could have ever put it into words the way that you did of what the spiral of addiction is. And I mean, if you think about it, it's really a flight from truth, right? Like a bad thing happens. Oh shit. I don't want that thing to feel, I don't want to feel the thing. So I'm going to avoid the thing. And now I need to numb out the thing. But now that I've numbed out the thing, I've created more problems. So now I got to run from those problems and then off to the race as we go. And so the first intervention when you're on an addiction spiral is to just stop and say, I'm in pain. I don't like the thing that's happening. I don't like the thing. This, this hurts. This sucks. And then what are my choices? You know, most people go to, well, why does this bother me? And this shouldn't bother me. And where in my childhood did the thing happen? And it's like, forget about all of that. A thing happened, you're in pain. Ask yourself, what are three choices available to me right now? And then of those three, pick one. And that will get you out of an addiction loop, you know, spiral a lot faster than trying to figure out why and where and when I was five, this happened. Like that stuff is useful, but not while you're trying to avoid making a really bad decision. Going down the thought loops is not helpful. Asking yourself, what are three easy choices I have right now? I could go to a meeting, I could call my sponsor, I could do the thing. Like pick one and then immediately do it instead of, well, but what about, and all the, like all of that thought stuff is not useful when we're in crisis. What are my choices? What will I say yes to? That's useful. And then the last thing that I, that I picked out of, of the book was the, the Oda loop. I really liked that. The observe, orient, decide, act like that. Ah, it makes so much sense. Like and again, it's like it's like slowing down. Again, mm-hmm. there's similar themes throughout the entire book, but slowing down and observing, making a decision, then acting on that decision, just like slow our roll, see what's going on. Right. And sometimes we have to slow down, but we have to do it quickly. And so that whole concept of observe, orient, decide, act comes from uh, fighter pilot training. So like, yay, Top Gun Maverick. But I came up you know, with this chapter before Top Gun got released, but it's very timely. It's like, if you're watching fire pilots, there's not like a lot of time to make decisions. They very much have to act quickly or else bad things happen. And it feels, I'm not comparing the two, but I'm saying it feels like that when you're stuck on an addiction spiral, that you're making these split second decisions. And if you're not making the quote right decision, you're going to end up crashing. And so observe, orient, decide, act slows you down. But once you build up the muscle, you can do it instantaneously. Just like fighter pilots don't start out doing that. You start out in like a really slow moving plane where the birds are passing you before you do that kind of high speed flight. This is the same thing. You know, we need to practice slowing down. So when life is flying at us, warp speed, we have the reflexes to make decisions that are helpful instead of the decisions that are not so helpful. And I think it's important to say it multiple times. So people hear it because I know in the early days of my recovery, I heard I had a person in my life that was telling me over and over again, but practice, not perfection. And like we get better at the things that we practice and we're not going to get things right the first time we try them. I think that's such a huge thing for people to hear, because I know for me, I kind of have I kind of have that mentality of like if I do it once and it's not perfect, it's not right. Like I I give up like I, I just can't do it. Uh-huh. I, have, I have a lot of quit in me. And if you think <laughs> I have a lot of quit too. Well, I mean, it's like, I don't like sucking at things. Sucking at things is no fun. But if you think of however many years you've been in your addiction, you're very well practiced at that. And so 
learning to go left when your brain is used to going right is going to require you to feel really awkward sort of like learning to write with your opposite hand. It's like, oh my God, I can't do this. This sucks. It's like, yeah, but your brain has how many years of practice at doing that that thing when you want it to be doing this other thing. So really like recognizing you're not stupid, you're not dumb. It's just your brain is unpracticed at sobriety or whatever your particular thing is that you're wanting. I love that. I love the book through and through. There are so many things. I feel like we could spend hours, days dissecting the book, but I didn't I didn't want to take up too much of your time, but I, I do appreciate you coming on. Uh, if there's anybody that's listening, that's interested in your book or wants to connect with you, where can they find you? Social media website, where can, where can they connect with you and, and get this fantastic book? Thank you so much. So I'm on Instagram at Brit Frank and Brit has two T's and the book is where, wherever books are sold, you can find it. And uh, more information about the book and me is at scienceofstuck.com. That's nice and simple. I love it. I like simple. <laughs> well, thank you again, Britt, for coming on. I really, really do appreciate it. Fantastic book. I need to reread it because I feel like there's just so much to it. There's so many layers, even though it's a simple, easy read book. Like there's so many concepts and things that can be applicable to anybody, whether you're struggling with addiction, in recovery, struggling with, with mental health issues, whatever the case may be, none of the above. There's things that are beneficial for everybody in this book. And I think that people could really benefit from reading it. So I highly recommend the book. If you haven't read it already, get a copy, get a highlighter, go through the book. There's so much in there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Brit, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I really do appreciate it. And I can't recommend The Science of Stuck highly enough. Do yourself a favor and get a copy. Links for the book as well as her website and social media will be in the show notes. You've been listening to Recovery Survey. If you got anything out of today's episode, I'd ask you to please leave us a five-star review and share this episode with a friend. If you'd like to get in contact with us, you can find us at recoverysurvey.com. You can listen to all of our episodes on the website as well as connect with us on social media where you can get previews for upcoming episodes.